This is Karen Roach, licensed clinical social worker and adjunct faculty member at Loyola University of Chicago. This recording is going to be a little bit of um, an overview slash even a little bit of a stray from the readings in your um, syllabus on personal peer and family interventions. And I'm going to be totally honest and tell you guys that I am going to do my best to keep this short and sweet because this is definitely a little bit of an area of passion for me. Um, I really feel like there are so many interventions that can be put into play for an individual, for a family, even at the community level. And we could talk just for days about the different programs, um, the different things that are out there. And you guys are at a day and age entering the profession where we have unlimited resources to creative ways to implement this information um, for the people and clients that we're working with. I encourage you to do a quick Pinterest search um, for those of you that are interested in working with kids and teens, Teachers Pay Teachers is another phenomenal resource. Pretty much uh, you can find anything that you're looking for from worksheets to activities to crafts to games, all kinds of ways to effectively intervene with clients besides just talking. And I will also tell you that I hear more and more from the kids that I work with at school that when they are working with their private therapist, uh, they're doing things like going fishing, taking walks, going for a bike ride, shooting baskets. So it's really an open book of ways that you can intervene with individuals, with families, and even at the community level. There are a couple things that I think are really important in order for this intervention to stick. Uh, the first thing is, is when we talk, we've talked a lot now about the working alliance and collaboration. And when you are in that initial meeting with a client and you first met them, making sure that your goals and their goals align with each other. Obviously, if you are going to be a clinician that wants to be more active with your clients, you have to be sure that this is also what your client is looking for. With the understanding, however, that you might be perceived as non-traditional or a little bit of outside of the box. And that's okay. Take that opportunity to educate your client on the therapeutic benefit of engaging in activity or doing things that might look very non-therapeutic. The other thing to remember is that by engaging in some of these activities, you are doing an amazing job at collaborating with your client, meeting them where they are, and being human. Um, so just wanted to kind of overview that before I dive into other thoughts on intervention. The other overarching uh, concept of intervention, and you might notice a parallel between what I'm sharing here and the information that is in Sakai, is there is this concept of social emotional learning. And this is definitely a little bit more of a public school term as especially schools in Illinois are required to meet certain social emotional learning standards. And for those of you interested in schools, I can certainly talk at length with you about that. Um, 
But to discuss it more generally, it's really just looking at competencies, things like self-awareness, self-management, decision-making, problem-solving. And these are all really competencies that we expect to be productive human beings. And because, um, sadly, a lot of these skills have to be taught, we are no longer picking them up through uh, natural relationships and modeling, we have to be sure that we have the things in place to be able to teach these skills and make sure that our kids are able to be responsible, make good decisions, manage their emotions, have solid self-awareness. And while uh, this is often looked at as kind of circular, I do believe that there are building blocks that have to happen first. For example, um, we cannot properly regulate our emotions if we aren't aware of how our emotions make us feel, the thoughts they give us, the things that we say. So I do believe that there is a certain hierarchical structure to this. Now, applying family, individual, and peer interventions to the neurosequential model and what we learned by Dr. Bruce Perry, I would imagine that he would agree that there is a hierarchical structure to learning these skills and developing these competencies. And this is where I encourage you, as always, to look beneath the surface of what is on that iceberg floating under the water that we cannot see. A lot of times it appears very simple. Oh, we just need to teach the skill or we need to teach them the language or we need to help them to know how to regulate their emotions. But if we've got internal triggers or an inability to perceive the outside world and know what to do with that, we know from the things Dr. Perry told us that we're not automatically going to be able to regulate those emotions, that we've got to have a developed sensory system, we've got to have a developed limbic system, and when we can now regulate our emotions, then we'll be able to form those healthy relationships and we can think and be our best every single day. So I could go on and on uh, with a thousand examples, more than that, of different interventions that you can use when working with your clients at the individual level, at the family level, and at the community level. I would encourage you to really look at the website that I put in, um, Sakai, and look at what are those social emotional competencies and learning standards because it really encompasses it all. And then it breaks it down even by chronological and developmental age level. So again, tapping into what we learned from Dr. Perry and the neurosequential model, just because you have an eight-year-old doesn't mean that all of our interventions are going to need to be at an eight-year-old level. If our eight-year-old has a developmental or emotional functioning level uh, that is more consistent with a four or five-year-old, our interventions need to target the skills that we would expect for a four or five-year-old. So again, like a four-year-old isn't going to be as readily able to manage and regulate their emotions as a typical developing eight-year-old. So we got to back that bus up and we have to meet that chronological eight-year-old at the four-year-old emotional functioning level and really start to teach them the language, the words, the connections to be able to regulate those emotions.
Now, the other key piece of this, in my opinion, is educating schools and parents, teachers and parents. Oftentimes, again, we look at a kid and we make assumptions or we have expectations based on their physical stature and their chronological age. But we know that that's not necessarily how their brain is developing and that that's not necessarily where they're at. When there is a gap between expectation and performance, that's often when labels are put on kids. And then these labels oftentimes drive the interventions or how we're going to address a kid. My philosophy is that I don't care if a kid has ADHD or autism or anxiety. I care about what behaviors and symptoms are impacting them from being their best every single day. And I address those behaviors and those symptoms irregardless of what their diagnosis is. I also make sure that I understand what is their developmental level, what are their functioning levels, what, where are they cognitively. And you have to understand a child's cognitive abilities because again, if you are trying to do an activity or teach them something based on an average intelligence level and that child is below average in intelligence, the child is going to get frustrated and you're going to get frustrated. I also believe that it's very important for you as the therapist to take an educator's role in teaching the parents about their children and helping them to reframe their perspective, giving them language and tools to use with their kids when they aren't with you. And it's also really important for a parent to understand that when a child is calm and regulated, they are going to be able to follow through with the skills that you have taught a lot easier than if they are elevated or dysregulated. Because remember, Dr. Perry has taught us that when we are in a state of dysregulation, our body essentially needs to survive first. We also are not able to access all of our cognitive thinking processes, leading us to potentially be making decisions that are not within our best interest. And finally, it's really important to reframe labels. As soon as a kid is labeled at risk or problematic or a behavior issue, the perspective of that child focuses on the negative. And it is really hard to get an adult to see them in a different way. And so for that, I loaded the video at risk or at promise. And even just simply reframing the perspective of looking at a kid who's got a lot of risk factors and reframing it in your mind and reframing it in the minds of the adults that work with that child, that that child is not at risk, but instead they are at promise or at opportunity. I like to look at it and I often tell the parents that I work with, we will focus on what's right to figure out what's wrong. Thank you for listening.